you remain standing now as we read God's word together, these words from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 28 through 29, as we read this exchange between Agrippa and Paul. Let us read these words together. Agrippa said to Paul, Are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you haven't heard, we have a lot of exciting things uh, going on here at Acts 2. We've been talking about them uh, for kind of several months off and on in different ways, whether through letters or town hall meetings. And um, we have a lot of exciting things going on. And I want to spend just a few weeks talking about one particular new thing, new opportunity that we have uh, here at Acts 2. Um, if you came last week, you heard a little bit of the beginning of the sermon series. It's called One Church because that's the name of our new opportunity. We're going to be starting a new church within Acts 2 uh, called One Church. Um, this is an exciting new opportunity that we believe something God is calling us to. Uh, it's going to be a new church within Acts 2. If you were here previously uh, throughout the past years when they brought on Reverend Adam Ricks, uh, Reverend Adam Ricks, uh, came on staff for a year here at Acts 2, and then went and uh, daughtered a church out in East Edmond called Connect. They're getting ready to build a building at Sorghum Mill and Coltrane, and uh, that was an amazing thing, amazing opportunity that Acts, Acts 2 had at that time. Um, but this new thing that we're about to do, this church within Acts 2, is going to look a little different. Um, I will be the lead pastor of one church, and we are going to launch worship in February. And uh, we will launch worship in February at Frontier Elementary, just next door here. And we believe that this new thing gives us a lot of new opportunities and a lot of new ways to reach out to people who are not currently being reached. Uh, if you were here last week, you um, saw a diagram of all the neighborhoods that are right around us and how uh, many of the neighborhoods that are right next door to us, we aren't reaching. Uh, we simply have a few families in each neighborhood, the Point Apartments, just right south of here. Uh, we have no member families that live there. Uh, we have neighborhoods that are right around us that we're not reaching. And so this is our attempt to actually do what we believe God has called us to. So we're going to start a new church within Acts 2, and it will be called One Church. Uh, the reason for that name uh, comes from the book of Ephesians, Paul, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, where he writes this, There is one body and one spirit, uh, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. We talked a little bit last week about new opportunities and how new things can kind of tend to make us nervous, right? If you're, if you're like me, I, I like order and I like repetition. I love doing the same thing over and over again. It makes me feel comfortable. It makes me feel like I have control in my life. But what we find is that God constantly calls us to do something new. God pushes us beyond our boundaries, beyond our comfort level, so that we can actually rely and depend on God. Now, what is what we find throughout the Gospels is, is Jesus constantly pushing those boundaries, and, and it constantly makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable. I think one of the reasons is because our tendency is to do things the way we've always done them, right? Maybe you've had this sense in your life that, you know, you want to just do it the way you've always done it, right? Maybe there, there was, you know, a vacation that you just love to do, and it was the same one every year or every other year, and it was the same spot, and that's where you wanted to go, and that's where you wanted to be, and somebody challenged that, right, and said, well, what if we went and did something else? What if, 
What if we went somewhere else or, or did something different instead? Or, or maybe you felt the new thing of a, of a changing job, right? Arriving in an office place where you, you don't know everybody as well as you did in the previous job, or you don't know the routine or the, the order of things. It can give us some anxiety, it can give us some tension. Or maybe you've moved into a, a new house in a new neighborhood, or maybe even a new town or a new state. And we know that our tendency is to do things the way we've always done them. And we also know that Jesus constantly pushes those boundaries, constantly pushes us beyond what we are comfortable to do and and pushes us into the space where we can actually rely on God. We talked a little bit last week about the Syrophoenician woman, uh, this woman who was not Jewish. She was Gentile. She was of both Syrian and Phoenician origin. And she approached Jesus, something she never should have done for a couple of reasons, one of which because she was a woman. She never should have come up to a Jewish rabbi and, and, and talked to him, yet she did. And the other reason she shouldn't have is because she was a Gentile. She was a Gentile and she approached Jesus, something she never should have done, and she asked Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus has this exchange with the woman as he reminds her of the way that most people think Jesus' ministry is about. He reminds her and says, don't you know that most people think my ministry is just for them? Don't you know that most people think that my power, my healing, my ministry is just for the Jewish people? And she says, yes, I know, but also in you there is always enough. In you there is always enough for all. Jesus reminds her that she is correct, and she goes home and finds her daughter healed. Jesus heals this woman, the woman who never should have approached Jesus in the first place. This Gentile woman, not of Jewish origin, this Gentile woman comes before Jesus, and he heals her daughter. And from this story, we learn that Jesus expands the kingdom when our own starts to shrink. And this is one of the reasons we are starting a church Because Jesus is constantly doing this, constantly pushing those boundaries of what it means to be kingdom-minded. So many times we can get this idea that 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 ministry is just about us, right? And and, and if if we could just come and and it just be us in worship, and if we could just do this thing and then take care of ourselves, then everything would be good and everything would be okay. What we find is that's not what Jesus calls us to do at all. Jesus constantly pushes these boundaries and asks us to think of a larger scale, to to think of a larger boundary that we might actually include all of God's children. This is what we believe God has called us to do. And it's something new. It's something new and difficult and awkward and uncomfortable. And and here's the thing about new things, that, that new things can be especially difficult if we are not spiritually prepared. Right? If we are not in our, in our right mind, if we are not spiritually prepared, if we have not been in a good relationship with God, if we have not been in a good relationship with Christ, whenever something new does come upon us, it'll hit us sideways. And, and this whole thing will just begin to unravel. Right? Maybe you've experienced the loss of a job, and maybe it was at a time in your life when you weren't particularly well, maybe emotionally, maybe physically, or, or maybe spiritually. And, and, and you've seen how that's gone, how all of these things can start to unravel themselves. Or maybe you've been invited to do a new thing, a new opportunity that was actually a really good opportunity, that's actually a really good thing, but you weren't spiritually prepared, you didn't have this mindset that God is asking you to have, and so when it came upon you, you just immediately said no. 
right? This de facto, this no, I've never done that before. I've never gone that far. I've never actually done that thing. Well, we know that new things are difficult, especially when we're not spiritually prepared. And I think this can be especially true for Christians, that many times as Christians, we cannot be spiritually prepared. We can just find ourselves in these situations where we're just not equipped to deal with these kind of things. And I think that's because there's a difference between almost Christian and altogether Christian. And this is something I want to talk about for a little bit today because I I think it's incredibly important. This line between almost and altogether. It was something I believe that Paul's ministry was all about. Paul, if you don't know, was somebody who spent his entire life persecuting the church. Paul spent his, his entire life seeking out people who claimed to follow Jesus, claimed to follow the way, and he sought them out so that he could arrest them, so that he could torture them, so that he could kill them. And, and, and Jesus met Paul, then Saul of Tarsus, on, on the way to Damascus to get more Christians, to bring them back into prison. And Jesus meets him there, and, and this, this bright light shines around Saul, and Jesus appears to him. And even though Saul has two other friends with him, they see nothing. And all Saul can hear as he's struck blind by this brilliant light is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul comes to find Christ, and he's told to go into Damascus to find another Christian there who will heal him, who will let him regain his sight. Never since that moment, Paul begins to spread the gospel instead of persecuting it. From that moment, Paul becomes an evangelist, one who shares the good news. And he does so traveling the world over, back and forth. And, And he even gets arrested for this. Then it's this arrested Paul that we come to know in the story of Acts that we just read. Uh, And the reason that he's arrested is actually uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Paul comes into Jerusalem um, just seven days after a feast day. And and we read this in in the book of Acts chapter 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia who had seen uh, Paul in the temple stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. More than that, they said, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem for bringing Greeks into the temple. Paul is arrested because there was this idea in Judea and this time and in Jerusalem that this faith that we had, this faith that the Jewish people had was just for us. It's just for us, and in fact, God is against everyone else, even those Greeks. Greece right now is conquering the world over. It's expanding so quickly and so fast, and all the people in Jerusalem are fighting against it. They're trying to push back, and, and, and they see that Paul has embraced these Greek people. He, he has embraced these people who are considered outsiders, who, who are considered conquerors, who are considered imperialists. Paul goes out, and he greets them, and he welcomes them into the temple. He welcomes them into the holiest place they believe there was on earth. Paul brings them in, and the people become in an uproar. 
and they arrest him for bringing these outsiders in. I think when we start to read this story, we can start to understand their, well, their lack of comfort with this. We become creatures of habit, especially in worship and in church. We want to sit in the same spot. We want to greet the same people. We want to do the same thing, sing the same songs. And what we find is that even Paul fought against it. Even Paul saw the need for new people to come in, for new people to find faith. So Paul is arrested for bringing these new people in, and, and, and he is tried three different times. He's, he's brought before three different councils to give three different defenses of why he's been arrested. And each time he starts to tell them his story of faith. Each time he starts to tell them not only about his ministry, but how he himself came to faith, and he starts to tell them about Jesus. We, we read it just a little bit earlier in the passage. Paul says, after that, as he's talking to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision that I had of Jesus Christ, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do Deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, he says, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. He says, to this day I have had help from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light from both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul begins a defense, right, of here's why I'm arrested, here's why this is all happening, and he ends it by telling him about Jesus. He, he ends this entire thing by telling King Agrippa. Agrippa is, is a Roman emperor in the time, and he's charged of ruling Judea and Jerusalem. He's getting kickbacks from, from all of the taxes paid for the temple, and, and he's there to establish order. He's there to make sure that there's no uproar in the temple. There's, there's nothing going on that Rome would not approve of. And so here Paul is telling him this entire story. Telling him this entire story, and he begins to respond to Paul. And he says what we read just a little while earlier. He says, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian. This word that the writer of Acts uses to become is a Greek word, poieo. Poieo, and it doesn't mean just to become. It means to execute, to commit without delay. This poieo, that any time Paul encourages somebody to accept Christ, he doesn't just ask them to, to kind of follow Jesus. That throughout Jesus' ministry, as he goes out to other people, he, he doesn't give them several options, right? It's, it's not, do you want to keep doing this thing that you're doing and follow me? Do you, do you want to, you know, go out and do that thing, and if you have time, maybe come and be by my side? 
that throughout Jesus' ministry, what he constantly asks is for people to follow him. And what they find is that they leave everything. They, they leave father and, and mother. They, they leave their jobs. They leave their families, and they go and they follow Jesus. They poieo. They, they, they execute, they commit. And every time Paul encourages someone to follow Christ, he encourages this poieo, this execution, this commitment without delay. That each and every time we are encouraged to follow Christ. We are encouraged to this poieo. That there is nothing else worthy of our time. There's nothing else but Christ. This is what Paul asks of Agrippa if he would commit to Christ. And it's what Christ asks of us. As some of you may or uh, may not know, uh, last April I uh, had the amazing opportunity to uh, go to England to actually walk in the footsteps of uh, John Wesley, who was an Anglican priest in the 1700s. Uh, he's the founder uh, of the um, Methodist movement, a uh, movement of which we are a part. Uh, it was an incredible experience to get to go to England and uh, to get to go to these historic sites. And, and much of the time that we were there, I was there with a, a group called Path One. It's a, a global church planting arm of the United Methodist Church. And the, most of the time that we were there, we spent time going to different sites, going to different places and organizations that John Wesley actually started. Um, what we found is that Wesley was a church planter. He went and he started churches. He started many different organizations. He started uh, boys and girls' homes. He started churches. He started soup kitchens. He started all these different things because it's simply who he was. It was in his DNA, and it was because he followed Christ that he did these things. So we went to several different churches that, that Wesley had started. Uh, some of them were still functioning churches today, and it was really cool to get to go there. One of the churches is called Wesley's Chapel, and it was in London, England. Um, Wesley's Chapel was started in 1778, um, and, and it was really kind of an interesting place to get to go. Uh, this was the first stop, actually, that um, we made while we were there, uh, since it was right there in London. Um, and when we went inside, uh, the, the chapel was beautiful, uh, but there was something kind of odd about it. Uh, this is a picture of the chancel. Um, they have three monuments there at the beginning, in, in the middle, to, uh, dedicated to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but there you can see uh, surrounding those monuments are little white squares. And these white squares were dedications to different historical figures. Different historical figures throughout United Methodism. Some pertaining to Wesley, some pertaining to his family members, or this person, or that, and they surrounded the entire sanctuary. And it was this really strange thing about how these people could come to worship each and every day and be surrounded by these monuments of the past. And I really struggled in these moments to try to think of how they could move forward by, with also looking back so far. It was really interesting when we went out in the back and we saw uh, John Wesley's gravesite. This was actually where he was buried. Uh, and we saw this giant monument out there. 
It's about 10 feet tall, this, this monument uh, on John Wesley's grave. And, and as I stood there and looked at it, I, I couldn't help but think this was just a bit strange to look at this thing. Until finally somebody came up on my side and said that when John Wesley was first buried here, the small planter at the top was the only thing on the graveside. Just a place for them to put flowers in. It wasn't until several years later that the historical society had come along and they had moved the planter, put this giant monument on Wesley's grave and placed the planter on the top. And as I sat there and looked at this thing, I, I couldn't help think, that I don't know if this is what Wesley would want. This, this person who... who talked about evangelism, this person who talked about sharing the gospel so often, this person whose heart was strangely warmed, this person who felt the fire of the Holy Spirit burning within him, who spent his entire life giving away all that he had so that people might come to know Christ, and here we were making a monument out of him. Here we were making a monument out of him instead of Christ. A little bit later in the trip, we went to a place called Bristol, England. And in Bristol, we found an, another uh, church that Wesley had started. Um, Wesley started uh, what's called the New Room in Bristol, England in 1739. As you can see, it looks a little different than the Wesley Chapel. It was actually pretty bare. It was pretty bare just with pews and um, some uh, a pulpit up at the very top. And as we wandered around uh, the new room, we also noticed these different things. Uh, when we walked into the courtyard, we saw all of these pictures hanging on the wall. Um, later on, the curator of the building told us that this is what they called the wall of awesomeness. Uh, we soon learned that in the new room, it was still a functioning church, and not only that, but it had an after-school program. And in the after-school program, they had taught children about how they were created in the image of God, and the kids thought that was pretty awesome. And so they decided to draw self-portraits and hang them on the wall of the courtyard. And they named it the Wall of Awesomeness, for they were built in the image of God. When we walked inside, we saw all these cut-out zebras uh, made of cardboard. As we talked to the curator about these zebras, he said all the children in the after-school program had made these zebras, got to color them with whatever they wanted. And then what the people of the new room did is started to hide those zebras in different establishments throughout Bristol. They would hide them at the grocery store and the drug store and the, and the different shops. And they did all this in the weeks leading up to Easter. They did all this leading up to the weeks of Easter so that each and every time the children went out into the community, they would see their zebra and they would be reminded of the resurrection of Christ. What I saw in the difference between the Wesley Chapel and the New Room was this difference between what it meant to be an almost Christian and an altogether Christian. What I saw in the difference was that to be an almost Christian means to have the form of religion. An almost Christian, I think, does everything right. They, they go to worship. They're nice to people. They might even give money sometimes. They might pray. They might read the Bible occasionally. 
but there's something else about it, right? There's something just missing from this almost Christian. And that something is what it means to be an altogether Christian, that an altogether Christian has the power of religion. John Wesley himself wrote about these people called Methodists, and he wrote this in a letter saying, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. He says, but I am afraid lest they should exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, do we have the form? Do we have the form of religion but not the power? Do we have the practices and the rites and the rituals down? Do we have all of the stand up and sit downs? Do we have all of the things we're supposed to say and all the things we're not supposed to say? Do we have all of these rites and rituals fixed in our heads so that we can do them on impulse? But do we also have the power? This power that comes from the Holy Spirit, this, this power that actually comes from being in relationship with Christ. That this is the difference between being an almost and an altogether Christian. And it's something that, that Paul spent his entire ministry about trying to encourage people to be this altogether, this all-in, this poieo Christian, this commitment-level Christian. This is something that John Wesley spent his entire life about, that he traveled all over England, even over the United States, to make sure that people were becoming this altogether Christian, this, this poieo, this committed Christian. Do we have that same commitment? Do we have that commitment in order to obtain the power? This is one of the reasons we are starting a church so that people might know of the power of Christ. A man by the name of Bill Hull uh, came out with some t statistics a while back about how easy it was for a new church to bring new people to faith. Um, he said this uh, about new churches. He said, churches that are zero to three years old, it takes three people in order to bring one person to Christ. It takes three attendees, it takes three average worshipers statistically to bring one new person to Christ. And he said when the church gets a little bit older, uh, when it gets between three and ten years old, it takes seven attendees. It takes seven people in order to bring one person to Christ. And when the church still gets older, if it's over 10 years older, it takes 89 attendees to bring one new person to Christ. Most Methodist churches, even in Oklahoma, worship around 49 people. That Many churches don't even have the threshold in order to bring one new person to Christ. That this is the reason we are starting a church so that people might come into relationship with Christ, so that they would know the power of Christ. 
Just for your, your own edification, in case you're wondering, uh, in 2015, Acts 2 had an average worship attendance of 574 and had 24 professions of faith, 24 new Christians in 2015. That means that it took us 24 attendees to bring one new person to Christ. Honestly, it's a pretty good average. As you saw, people who are 10 years older, which we are, uh, it's been 10 years since Acts 2 has been worshiping in what we now call the chapel, 15 years since Charter. And so it's only taken 24 people to bring one new person to Christ. But we know that if we start something new, if we start this new church, if we start one church, it will only take three people to bring one person to Christ, and that is good news. That is good news. Because there's a lot of almost somethings. There's a lot of almost Christian, there's a lot of almost this and almost that, a lot of people who are going through the rituals, just hoping, just looking for something, just praying that someone might come to meet them, might offer them something better, something worth hoping for, something worth living for. That is why we are starting a church. So I would encourage you, friends, to, to join us this week as we pray. As we pray for the neighborhoods around us, um, pray for specifically Valencia, the Point Apartments, La Sonata, Scissor Hill Landing, and Settlers Crossing. These are the neighborhoods right around us that we believe God has placed us in a position to help, to be a blessing to. And these are the people that we're going to be looking at when we start this new church. And as we start uh, walking neighborhoods and meeting new people, simply pray that God would go before us, that, that God would already prepare the hearts and the minds of the people that he has planned for us to meet. So I hope that you join us as we pray. And, and then I also hope you would consider to initiate just one conversation about faith. Maybe this week, pray about who that might be. Maybe a, a friend or a family member or somebody who it might be, just to initiate one conversation of faith. It doesn't even have to bring anybody to Jesus. Just talk about what faith looks like. What does faith mean to you? What does religion mean to you? What does God mean to you? Just initiate one conversation about faith. I hope you would consider and pray about this over this week because I believe it's worth doing. Because there's a lot of almost somethings out there who are just hoping for something better. Something else uh, I got to do while I was in England uh, was to actually get to see Stonehenge. Um, it was pretty cool. It, it was uh, actually the second time that I had seen it, and, uh, and it was still pretty amazing. I mean, these giant boulders that, that people really don't know, like, how they did it. You know, this was, like, centuries and millennia ago, and they say, you know, we think they might have done it this way, or we think they might have, you know, gotten these stones from over here and drug them this far, but we don't really know how they did it. And what's more than that, they're not really sure about why they're there. You know, they, they know it had something to do with the solstice. They know it had something to do with the sun. And, and, and still, they hypothesize about why these stones are actually here. I wonder. A thousand years from now, 
will they wonder why we were here? Will they write essays and hypothesize about why these people called Christians gathered into buildings and worshipped? My hope and my prayer for us is that we do something worth giving our lives to. My hope, my prayer is that we do something that will be remembered for thousands and thousands of years. That no one will have to ask. That they will know of our great love of God and our commitment to Jesus Christ. 